Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Election day is quickly approaching on November 2nd, and this time around, police are on the ballot in Minneapolis. If passed, the ballot initiative called Question 2 would replace the police department with the Department of Public Safety that could include officers, but also mental health and substance abuse experts to respond to calls. This new department would be overseen by the mayor and the city council, giving them more power in the situation. But residents and public officials are split on the subject. For more on how this all might play out, we'll speak to Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. So question two basically asks residents whether they want to replace the Minneapolis Police Department with a new Department of Public Safety. Now, critics of this measure say that this is just an attempt to defund the police, to get rid of the police chief and to get rid of the police department in its entirety. But the people who petitioned for this item to get on the ballot, they said that that's not true. They said that police officers will obviously have to exist in the city because there will always be a need for an armed response in certain incidents. But what they want for this measure to do, should it pass, is to allow for social workers, for mental health experts, for people experienced in dealing with the homeless and issues of that nature to be able to respond to certain situations because homeless encampments are an issue across the country, including in Minneapolis, mental health issues people are suffering from there and dealing with. And so they want for a comprehensive team to be set up so that it's not just armed officers responding to every single incident, which is pretty much what it is now. And they believe that it clearly doesn't work. So they think the city needs to revisit how they approach public safety. And those were a lot of the calls that we had seen after protests were going on to set up that type of system, or at least put more effort and money into that other side of things, the social workers and, and all that stuff. Now, this is interesting because a lot of the specifics are a little vague still, and even the specifics of what that new department would look like would give more power really to the mayor and city council there. I mean, they will be the ones who decide who would be the commissioner and how it's all set up. So, I mean, that's kind of an interesting angle to it. It is. And what's also interesting is that the current mayor, Jacob Frey, he is opposed to it. He is running for a second term and he opposes this. He has said publicly that he doesn't believe that whoever is in charge of law enforcement should have to respond to an entire city council, so 13 people in addition to the mayor, which is what would happen if this measure were to pass. Currently, the mayor holds all authority over the police department, but several members of the city council, as well as many residents and organizations there, feel that that's not appropriate. It shouldn't just be one person who has complete control over the police department. And critics of the current mayor say that he has not done enough to clamp down on the police department. And so they believe that with more oversight, including the city council, it would change things in the city and it would improve the relationship between police and residents there. That's a difficult one, right? I mean, you could get that uh, case of too many cooks in the kitchen, too many people involved could 
also go the other way? I, I, you know, it's just a such a complicated issue. What do the polls say? How how is this idea faring so far? What's interesting is that there haven't been a ton of polls done on it, but one of the recent ones done by a collective of media outlets in Minneapolis showed that the majority of residents do support this measure. At least the residents surveyed as this part as part of this poll, that 49% said that they supported replacing the police department and giving the city council more authority over public safety. 41% said they opposed and 10% were on the fence. They were undecided. But it seems like people are open to this idea. And some people believe that the death of George Floyd helped to get more people closer to the conversation who were maybe outliers or who just didn't really think that the police department posed a threat to residents there. Some of the people I spoke to for my article, they said that city council members, some of them and residents have been calling for years for there to be an overhaul of the police department and public safety in the city. But George Floyd's death definitely invited other people to the conversation, not just locally, but internationally and nationally as well. And some of the people you spoke to also, uh, you know, to their point, obviously, this would be a new system to be set up. And they say that there's a lot of unknowns. They don't want to be a test subject in this type of action, right? They'll have to rebuild from scratch. You know, it could be a total success, right? But what if it's a complete failure and they voted for it? And so there are a lot of people still are on the fence with it and don't know how to approach it just yet. I will say that pretty much all of the residents that I spoke to while I was in Minneapolis, I was there for a week and no one really that I spoke to said that they were thrilled with the current state of public safety there or with how the police department has operated over the years. They do believe that there are some changes that should be made, but the, what it comes down to is what those changes look like. Not everyone wants to just establish this brand new department. And I spoke to the Minnesota Attorney General, Keith Ellison, who you'll recall, it was his office that prosecuted Derek Chauvin and landed a conviction that sent him to jail for, he'll be in jail for more than two decades. But um, he said he's actually in support of the measure. And he said it's time for change. And he understands that change can be scary and people may be reluctant. They may want to stay with something they know, even though they know that it's not working and they know that it's unhealthy. But he said he would encourage people to embrace change because he thinks that if the community really puts their heads together and finds a way to improve conditions there. He thinks that everyone will feel safe in the city and that it could just improve the standing of the police department and make residents feel safer there. This is going to be a very interesting one to see how it plays out. Question two in Minneapolis. There's going to be a lot of eyes on this once Election Day rolls around. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's Halloween, and that means it's time for spooky movies. And horror movies in general have had quite the evolution. Some of the best horror movies have acted as mirrors, reflecting our own fears of the time back at us, and built upon each other to get us where we are today. From the early days with the classic movie monsters, to the slashers and serial killer flicks, all the way to modern horror movies. They've all been commentaries on what's going on in the world at the time. The next step will be to see how the pandemic impacts the horror movie genre. For more on the horror century of movies, we'll speak to Asia Romano, culture writer at Vox. I think it's great that you love horror. I think a lot of people do love horror and instinctively recognize that about horror, that, you know, there's something about a movie that looks at what we fear and what we're afraid of and that kind of gets at this collective subconscious anxiety, right? 
sometimes we may not really understand what we're afraid of until we see a horror movie that allegorizes it for us, right? And I think we see that um, throughout the, the cinema century. If we look back at sort of the trajectory of these films, you know, from from like the monster movies of the Universal era, right, where these monsters were sort of standing in standing in for very like concrete things, through to like the more allegorical films of like the 60s and 70s, and and even now today, we have lots of movies that are really nebulous and and metaphorical and and really kind of cool in the way that they. The more abstract they are, the more you can like read into them and project right. your own fears onto them. And the future of movies, right? We're going to be seeing so many pandemic-related things that we've already we're already seeing some things. I mean, this kind of kind mm-hmm. of be the big inflection point, I believe, for this type of genre going forward. Dark things of what we did on lockdown, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff is going <laughs> to is going to start coming out, you know, in that sense. So let, let's start because um, uh, you, as I mentioned, you kind of lay through movies over the decades and everything, you know, pre-war Hollywood, uh, you know, the big monster type movies, the popularized by Universal Studios, uh, you know, uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, you know, we're looking at actors like Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, Lime Chaney. How did these play out? Films like these, you know, are being made after World War One, right? And so they, people are really kind of reeling from this, from the first modern war, right? So you have uh, things that are sort of like the, a lot of the plots of these movies are kind of pitting the old world against the new world, right? Like this idea of tradition um, being obliterated in the wake of uh, in the wake of modernity and and you know, uh, modern cities and lots of these monsters, these supernatural creatures, kind of invading these really urbane cosmopolitan cities and just sort of taking over everything. Obviously these kind of set up so much for the future as well. You know, talking about how other uh, movies build upon that, um, you know, these monsters uh, themselves, especially as I mentioned from universal studios, uh, really just the class, the big classic monsters that were, that are, have been around since then, right. Uh, very different variations as well. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of these really deal directly with the idea of the other, the other with a capital O, this idea that people who sort of control the narrative can often turn someone, you know, turn the the quote unquote other into a scapegoat for all kinds of anxieties, right? And project all kinds of fears onto them. And a lot of times these films are really exploring either directly or indirectly what happens when the quote other is connected directly to the self somehow, right? Like, you know, you have things like the invisible man or the wolf man or like cat people even, you know, this idea that the protagonist could be the person who is, is, is somehow corrupted and turned into the evil. And then of course you have that, that basic kind of morality, like moral um, dilemma being plumbed throughout horror and really built on through, you know, as we get into more modern crises, like the, like the environmental crises films of the the 50s and 60s and so forth and and then of course then today with all kinds of of deconstructions of that idea yeah let's talk let's move on to post-war kind of this atomic age where we do see a lot of environmental and technology uh you know alien monstrosities that was a huge uh factor for even these huge big monster movies like godzilla you know a, a big uh, impact on japanese films and uh things that we saw also uh here on the american side Right, exactly. And I think that's really interesting to think about in terms of how we view, like right now, I think a lot of our anxieties are really apocalyptic. And what's unique about, you know, the Godzilla films is that they were, they arose in the wake of an actual apocalypse, right? Like this is Japan's kind of attempt to really grapple with, you know, the worst thing that could possibly happen to humanity. 
having just happened to them, you know, and, and so Godzilla was really an interesting figure because he represents not only the worst that mankind can do, but he represents sort of the ability to rebuild and um, to kind of reclaim uh, reclaim a sense of control over the atomic age. And he ultimately, you know, in many films later in the franchise becomes kind of a friend to, uh, and like an ally to humans and to right. some degree. So we also saw the rise of uh, bad kids, scary kids in the sixties, uh, you know, movies like the bad seed and, uh, and others, you know, children of the corn, things like that. So uh, obviously that that's all extends. Everything builds upon each other, but you know, these are the kind of the first times where we're seeing these scary kids come up too. And you think about that as a, you know, a, a reaction to, you know, 50s modern housewivery, right? And like the the way that uh, in the post-war era, you had women rec- like really, really claiming um, their territory as, you know, suburban moms and so forth. And you had this idea of, of you know, modern feminism sort of sprouting seed and taking root in, in the collective conscious and the, the dark underbelly of that, I think is what we see in these types of movies where you have these, you know, cherubic little girls and boys being raised in these idyllic households, but yet there's something warped and twisted about them. Right. And like what that does to your idea of like the, the modern picket fence family and so forth. Right. So I think that's really, and, and that of course, really kind of is a, a precursor to all of the psychosexual madness that happens in horror films in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, that's the next phase of it, right? The psychosexuality, the occult serial killers really became huge there. I mean, you started off with Psycho, but you get into things like Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You will see uh, kind of uh, more you know, more blood in these movies where you wouldn't see so much of that before. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of the the films of the 50s, whether they're horror or not, are characterized and even before the 50s. um, The whole basically up until the 1950s, cinema is sort of characterized to a degree by this idea of repression, because you have the Hollywood Hayes Code really kind of putting a a layer of censorship over everything and what you can can and can't say and do and show on screen. Right. But then in 1968, uh, the Hays code ended and, and that censorship was, was lift, was lifted basically. And from that point on, it was kind of like all bets were off. And so you really have this, this period of like gleeful unrepression, I think of all of these more sorted themes and ideas. And that really, uh, I think ties into the idea of all of the occult, activity that you had in horror films of the period. You had lots of explorations of Satanism, lots of things like demonic possession and other types of like supernatural activity that really were supposed to kind of mirror the the way that basically like the human psyche was kind of breaking down in response to um, to modernity, I think. For sure. And so that's why you, when you get these big, big films like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, right, that were just so seismically impactful in terms of how they made, how they changed our ideas of Satan, basically. Yeah, definitely. The possession, all that stuff, the exorcist that still creeps me out to this day, but uh, you know, I can't help it. I love watching it. So it's definitely one that figures in there. Let's uh, move on to kind of the next part, you know, the pre nine 11 era, uh, you know, civilization can protect you. you. You talk a lot about how American modernity, how things happened in malls. You're really not safe anywhere in in all of this uh you know we talk about movies like the gremlins one of my favorites also too nightmare on elm street you're mm-hmm. really everywhere is fair game for for horror now yeah exactly and i think that's one big one big characteristic of of horror films of like the 80s and so forth is that they play around with this idea that 
there's nowhere that's really safe. And I think that's such a powerful idea because we see it play out everywhere, whether it's on the beach in Jaws or whether it's in shopping malls, right, during with the, the zombie trilogy, Romero, Romero zombie trilogy, or even in your dreams with something like Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and I think the kind of the, the pinnacle film of that of that idea is the Blair Witch Project, where you have these kids that are really like modern, like even today, they still come across as like modern, very modern and like current kids. You know, they've been raised in a very safe environment and very, you know, like, you know, by people with all the privilege that the, the Reagan era afforded economically, right? So they're these very self-assured kids. They're from college. They're going into the woods for what's supposed to be this, you know, easy student documentary film weekend right and then everything goes to hell and all of the like these these this huge like van full of assorted trappings that they've brought with them from civilization just proves completely inadequate and they wind up like arguing over a map in the woods right and that map basically kind of becomes sort of a before and after point you can think of horror cinema like because before like basically with the Blair Witch Project there's this idea that you have this map and it's lost. Like you're completely off the map. Like here there'd be dragons. Right. right. Um, but then nine 11 happens. And I think with nine 11, you have this emerging idea that I think Cora really plays with that there never was a map to begin with. And we're all lost and we're all just sort of waking up to the bleakness of that idea. Right. And you, and we see a kind of reinterpretation of a bunch of traditional horror formulas after this. But as you mentioned, it kind of like how horror looks like in the real world connections to to loss and other violence and things like that and and this is kind of what happens post 9/11. Exactly. And to some extent you had this set up with uh with with Scream basically with the advent of Scream in 1996 um and how that allowed horror to really kind of become self-aware overnight and we really saw that the trajectory the progression of that play out throughout the 2000s and and even into today. Um you have sort of this idea of genres talking to each other of, of the genre talking directly to the audience in some ways. And it all sort of plays with, within this, this realm of this idea that there are no narrative rules anymore. So then you have films like, like you have films like 28 Days Later that are, um, you know, it's a traditional playing with a traditional zombie um, formula, but it's layering all these other really dark uh, nihilistic commentaries about, uh, about social decay and, man's inhumanity to man and so forth, like on top of it in this way that really kind of really refreshes the genre. Movies that seem to be aware that they're of the tropes that they're playing within, right? And really bl- like playing on the audience's understanding of tropes um, to deepen the conflict tension within the story. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that goes into horror movies. And as I mentioned, many times holding up a mirror to what's happening. I hope everybody's watching some scary movies uh, over the Halloween weekend. And, uh, you know, we'll see what the next phase is. As I mentioned, the pandemic will probably be a big uh, impact there. Asia Romano, culture writer at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.